Hey, writers, join our first draft weekly writers club. We meet every Tuesday from 12 to 1 Eastern time. For more information, go to writingclassradio.com and click on the classes tab. This is Writing Class Radio, and I'm Allison Langer, a student in the class, and today I'm your host. I'm Andrea Askowitz. I'm the teacher of the class. Writing Class Radio is for people who love hearing true personal stories and want to learn a little bit about how to write their own stories. This episode looks at writing as therapy. People always ask me how I got into writing why we started the podcast. Well, from the time I was nine, I wrote in my journal, the kind with a key and a rainbow on the front. I wrote about Van Waiters, a boy I liked, how I hated my frizzy hair, and how I planned to run away if my parents didn't buy me the new LaSport sack. I wrote as if my journal were my best friend the only friend who could handle such humongous secrets. After my divorce 16 years ago, I decided to write a book about my horrible two-year marriage and what happened during the divorce. Chapters about how I paid off $12,000 of my husband's debt. How he bought new skis and new fishing gear with my money instead of paying me back. And how one drink always turned into five and then led to Coke fun stuff. Anyway, after a few chapters, I was so pleased with my work that I sent it to my friend Catherine. When I called to ask what she thought, there was a long pause. And then she said, You need a writing class. What I didn't realize then was that enrolling in my first writing class with Andrea, a person I'd never met, would change my life in a way journaling could not. I expected to learn the rules of writing and to get better at it, but I never imagined that writing down all my hidden shit and then sharing it would feel so liberating. Working on my story in class, editing it, and having to answer the big questions like, why did I marry a man with addiction problems? Was I trying to save him? Fix him? What does that say about me? Andrea always asks us three questions. Why are you writing this story now? What have you come to say? And has your character changed? When I began to answer these questions in class, I began to understand the secrets, the pain, and the shame. Brittany Brown is someone who has dedicated her life to researching vulnerability and shame. Her TED Talks are something we insist all our first-time students listen to or watch. We suggest these talks because we want them to open up and have the courage to be vulnerable, to be seen, to be honest, all the things that Brown talks about. She says, and these are her words, We have to talk about shame. Life is about daring greatly, about being in the arena. When you walk up to that arena and you put your hand on the door and you think, I'm going in. And I'm going to try this. Shame is the gremlin who says, "Uh uh-uh, you're not good enough. Brene is talking about daring greatly in life. We want people to dare greatly in their writing so they can write a great story. A story that tells the whole truth. 
If they don't write the truth because they're ashamed, let's face it, the story sucks. You know what else she says? Shame needs three things to grow. Secrecy, silence, and judgment. Douse it with empathy, and it can't survive. I know all about shame. I hid it behind some pretty thick armor. It was that first real vulnerable story that I read in Andrea's class about my 16-month-old daughter's death that dissolved my armor. I tell that story in episode one. Everything I had hidden behind that shield spilled out. The difficult relationship I have with my mom, my ex-boyfriend's suicide, my pathetic dating life, my children, my wrinkles, my tits. In the seven years I've been in writing class, I've written about all those things. I'm not saying I'm completely healed. I've accepted a lot about myself. So now when people call me out for my bullshit, I can laugh and agree with them. And I feel so much less shame. In this episode, three new students from our class will share their stories. Michelle tells about a rape that she hid for 22 years and how much lighter she feels since writing about it. Liz explores the real reason she's in writing class. And JD finally talks about her brother's suicide on the last night of class. I have seen each new student let go of trauma they have hidden and carried for way too long. There's an emotional release, and then their writing changes. The shame is lifted. They seem free, and their stories just roll out. You will also hear from Lori Schrager, a yoga teacher and psychologist, about why and how she prescribes writing to her clients. Writer James Baldwin said, All artists, if they are to survive, are forced, at last, to tell the whole story to vomit the anguish up. Our first storyteller is Michelle Massonet. She came to our class on the first day, hunched over the table, and only spoke when it was her turn to read. The next week, she came in with a long story to read. I was riveted. I looked around, and it seemed like everyone was riveted too. When she finished, nobody spoke. I just want to warn you, this story is about rape. Olivia Benson was in the middle of consoling a young woman, repeating the phrase often heard on SVU. This is what I did. After weeks of working and nonstop deadlines, I binge. And this time, my binge of choice is Law & Order SVU's latest season. And somewhere between my pad thai lunch and the haze with which I consumed each episode, it happened. I'm staring at Olivia Benson. She's talking. Whatever happened, it's not your fault. You didn't ask for this. It's not your fault. I almost choked. I began having a very visceral reaction to what she was saying. Why? What, what was happening? I felt as if a wall I had built many years ago was crumbling and fragments of what was on the other side were becoming visible. Now we're driving. There's no cell phones, no internet, and it's the mid-90s. It feels like freedom when the window's down and the music's on. He said, anywhere you want to go. What do you feel like? I'm at your beck and call. Stephen was tall, handsome, charming, polite, and full of this positive energy I couldn't get enough of. It was only our second date, but it felt so easy to be with him. He used big words, drove a nice car. Dancing, I said. Let's go dancing. Ease, trust, 
laughter. He was so nice. Not like the others with their macho facades. So many smiles were shared and spins. I love spins. La salsera, they would call me. Other men would ask him, can I have a dance with her? And he'd wave me on. He liked watching me dance. He wasn't jealous. What a wonderful thing. I thought. Oh my God, is it really you? I spun around to see my friend's parents. They were beaming at me and my date. I didn't even know you were in town. How's college? Who is this handsome young man you're with? The questions were harmless, sweet and doting. We all laughed and shared funny stories. It was perfect. We're pretty far from your house, he says. Do you want to crash at mine for a little while? I'm a perfect gentleman, I swear. Giving him my best side eye elicits more pleas from him for trust. I believe him. It's a beige apartment in a sea of apartments, newly built, nondescript, and advertised from the highway with signs, if you lived here, you'd be home by now. Go ahead, get some rest, he says. I think maybe if I hadn't drank. I'm going to go grab something, he says. What was he going to grab? But my eyes closed. I was happy and too tired to notice anything more than the softness of the pillow as my head went down. When I woke up, it was too late. I was pinned down. I was confused. And I apologized. I asked what was happening. I said, no, no, no. I thought I was stronger. I thought I was smarter. I can hear my father's voice in my head. Don't get stupid. I shouldn't have been here. This was all my fault. I knew better. I knew better. I knew better. My fault, my fault, my fault. I begged. He got violently stronger. How am I so weak? I cried. How is this happening? And just like that, it was done. my hair and just walked out of the room. Everything I hadn't noticed became crystal clear. The smell of CK1, the blue of the sheets, the lack of anything personal anywhere in the apartment. As I ran to the bathroom crying in silence, I cried even more because the shower curtain was clear and I wanted to hide. No scrubbing would take it away, so I decided I would erase it. I was good at erasing things. The incident was over. Olivia Benson is still on my television screen, comforting and assuring. You'll get through this, she says with her arm wrapped around the other actress. I am reeling, reeling off of a 19-year-old memory I had erased. It wasn't even a date rape episode. 19 years later, and I'm crying for that girl who never spoke up. I'm crying for that girl who decided that she wasn't going to acknowledge what happened to her. Crying because everything was coming into focus. All of the whys. My mind is back on campus again, and it's one month after the incident. I'm drinking too much water. I need to cut back. Getting up to pee at 4 a.m. is killing me. Something's wrong with me. I can't even function on campus after 3 p.m. I don't even like carrots. Why am I eating carrots? I have to see someone. Stat. The doctor's office was traditional. Photos of his family, large mahogany desk. I thought, how nice this doctor must be. It felt warm, with a big picture window facing campus. I'd be okay. He walked in and I thought immediately of a sweet suburban dad. 
He had on a bow tie. It was polka dot. It was all I could look at as he started to talk to me, not with concern or compassion, but with disdain and disappointment. This is such a shame. You are a young girl with your whole life ahead of you. Did you even use protection? I could only blink. Do you hear me? This is something that could have been avoided. Now your whole life. He trailed on, but I kept staring at the bow tie. In the distance somewhere, I heard him talking, but my mind had shut him down. He was mean, and he was not telling me good things. I needed to exit immediately. I needed to find the nearest Planned Parenthood and camp there. I would not become a statistic. I would not be like the others. I knew better. I couldn't tell a soul, especially my mom. I knew she tried to convince me to have it. I knew what I had to do. Back then, they made you wait. Eight weeks, they said. And when it came time for my appointment, I was lucky there were no protesters outside. I was completely detached. Afterwards, my friend and her mother picked me up and took me to IHOP. It was February 11th. I slept for the following three days. Those closest to me would ask, what happened? I made a mistake, I would say. It's five years after the incident. You have a problem, you know that. You tricked me into loving you, and now you've turned on me. It's like you're asexual. Caesar was everything I ever wanted. At least I thought so. Was I sabotaging it? I don't have a problem, Caesar, but if it was up to you, I'd wake up every morning with your dick in my mouth. Remembering how guilty I felt, not knowing why, the more he claimed ownership over me, the more I resented him. The angrier he became, the more I withdrew. I know he loved me, but how could he understand when I denied it myself? I didn't see the connections because I denied the issue. However, I never denied the fallout. I rationalized it. My fault. My fault. Nine years after the incident, I get a phone call from my mom. She's in shock. Do you remember Stephen, she asks. My silence gives her leave to continue. They found him dead in his car. Can you believe it? They say it was drugs. Pobrecito, I feel horrible. I never liked him. I had no reason not to like him. And now he's gone. How could I tell her? I stayed silent. She felt guilty about not liking him. There would be more relationships where I would stop, play, and repeat the cycle I started with Caesar. Two years was always my limit. Not even knowing why I was the way I was. That's the problem with erasing. You can't connect the dots. Back in my living room, I'm in shock. I have to start telling the truth. Two weeks after Olivia Benson. I take my mom for Mexican food. She's always telling me about Jesus. I love her so much I would listen to her tell me about aliens in the garden if it made her happy. She never stops asking about my relationship potential or if I have anything on the horizon. So hopeful she remains. I had to tell her the truth. Afterwards, through her tears, she musters. God damn it, I felt so guilty about how much I didn't like him that I bought his headstone. I knew there was something wrong with him. Nowadays, I wonder... When is the right time to tell that special person in your life about this type of incident? I haven't figured that out, but I do know that a weight has been lifted. I know myself better now. And the last guy I dated, I told him. For the first time, I was really ready to face the issue plaguing my relationships with honesty instead of avoidance. He was kind and caring. We didn't end up working out, but for the short time that we were a part of each other's lives, we were honest.
After a story like Michelle's, it's so difficult not to pour over the narrator, comfort her, and ask questions about her life. We comment on the writing, which diffuses the emotion. I know it sounds cold, but it's really a good thing. Well, or at least it was for me. When I told the story about my daughter, I didn't want pity. I wanted to feel strong, and I did. Next up is Liz Mesa. She is also a new student and, like Michelle, came to class with a story to tell. We had Liz stand up and in five minutes answer the question, what is your story? The reason we do this exercise is to get to the bottom of what the story is really about. Critical details come through when standing and talking versus writing and overthinking. Liz has been working on a story all semester she called Skinny Fat which is about how she gained 100 pounds but still thinks of herself as a skinny person. There's a moment in that story, which we hope to bring you later in the season, where she describes going to bars and wearing miniskirts, exercising fanatically and barely eating. We all wondered why. Was there a deeper reason why she was trying so hard to be thin? This is all part of her story. So I've really been trying to figure out what the story is that I've been trying to tell for the last nine classes. So I, I didn't want to dig deep because I was afraid of what I was going to find. And uh, I came back with a memory. Um, I was in middle school and all the cool kids used to hang uh, in the park and they used to smoke pot and drink beer. And I really wanted to fit in with them. Uh, but I was really tall and I was really wide and uh, as a child of immigrants they didn't believe in deodorant or uh, push-up bras for you know like when you're 12 and developing they didn't think you're training bras and they didn't let you shave your legs and you know I had glasses and I had acne and really oily hair and my mom thought that was perfectly okay and she would buy me Tommy Hilfiger clothing which before he was a racist so she'd buy me these really baggy jeans and these sneakers and these you know fucking baggy shirts and uh, I used to go into stores and people would be like young man young man excuse me and that was super traumatizing because I was 12 years old and you're trying to be a woman you're not trying to be a young man but you know your tits are down because you don't have a bra and you're hairy as fuck and your face is covered in acne and glasses and you're oily and you push it back with a ponytail you're a young man you know um and 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 I thought I thought from being raised at home that I was a spectacular, shiny star full of potential and possibility because that's what my parents always fucking told me. And I, th- I thought that's what everybody saw. So I went into this park full of confidence and I'm like, I will charm them with my wit and my good looks. And I walk in there and I'm like, hey guys, what's going on? And Martin, who later became my best friend of 20 years and um, Martin, the popular boy, points at me. It's a crowd of 10 other middle schoolers and they go, troll, troll, get the fuck out of here, troll. Leave. Monster, leave. My cousin, I'd grown up with her like a sister. She was one of the cool kids. She was there. Um, She lived in my house at the time. She just stood there. She didn't stop it. So Martin picks up a rock, throws it. They all start picking up rocks, throws it throw the rock, break my glasses. And I just stand there and I take it. And I don't cry. Until another somewhat fat girl uh, stopped everybody. And she was like, guys, leave them alone. It's enough. 
And then everybody just, you know, dropped their rocks and went back to class. And I just sat in the park alone for hours until my mom came to pick me up. And I just got in her car and I never, ever, ever talked about it again. And uh, I got a notebook. And the next three or four years of high school, I came up with a plan about how I was going to better myself. It included losing the glasses and the weight and changing my hair and my outfits and what I drove and what I look like. And that included my, my self-improvement plan. It's all over these notebooks that I kept all of high school. Um, and I didn't study. I didn't need to study because all of it was focused on becoming thinner and getting on the right acne medications and the right hair products. And uh, I had never kissed a boy, and that was a big deal because all my friends were dating, the little friends that I had. And uh, I did it. I wore those fucking puka shell necklaces, and I finally fit into Abercrombie and Fitch, and I wore fucking mini skirts, and I got a brand new BMW. <laughs> and uh, the summer after high school, I kissed like a record number of 25 boys behind like dumpsters at like Church Hills or whatever the fuck other club. Um, it was, was a lot for a 17 year old. I never fucked them, but I kissed them and I would lead them on and I'd be like, okay, that's another one. I'd keep a check mark. All the boys who ignored me through high school, I lured them in and, you know, checked them off. And it became so important for me. Of course, it was important. It was payback. She needed to lure these guys in, make them regret what they did, and to prove to herself that she was not still that pimply, greasy, fat monster. As I listened to Liz's story, I thought, holy shit, I was one of those mean kids. And those kids can really fuck you up. There was this kid named Paul Ismay. He was really feminine, clearly different from the rest of the boys. I called him Paul is gay and had an actual fight with him in seventh grade on the way home from school. We got kicked off the bus for fighting, then continued to claw and push each other on the side of the road while all the kids on the bus watched. They cheered me on as I pulled his hair and called him gay. Listening to Liz's story made me wonder where he is now and if he still hates me. What an asshole I was. I deserve to be hated. Paul, if you're listening, I am so, so sorry. I've never forgiven myself for doing that to you. I'm really sorry, Paul. Our last storyteller is Jennifer Dertuzos. It's Dertuzos. Oh, fucking hell. Well, we call her JD because I can never get her name right. We discovered JD when she began responding to the daily prompts on our website. We asked her to join our writing class because it was clear she had a story she needed to tell. The story she shares with us on the very last night of class was nothing like the story she'd shared all semester. She stood up to answer the prompt, what's your story? I'm ready. Hello. So I grew up thinking I had the perfect family. Um, I have two brothers. I'm the middle child. And um, my older brother is very quiet, very reserved. Um, my younger brother is very much like me, very gregarious and outgoing, very easy to become friends with. And like I said, I grew up thinking we had the perfect family, perfect childhood. My parents have a perfect marriage. They're very happy. Um, and I always aspire to be like them. I always aspire to have a relationship like theirs. Until last spring. And uh, this was something 
that I started this class to address, or I, I basically found this class as a form of therapy, but I never wrote about it because I felt like it would be betraying this occurrence that took place. So last spring, my older brother decided to kill himself, and he was successful. He uh, wrote a farewell letter that was very descriptive in how he wanted everything handled. And he basically asked for us never to mention him, never to talk about him, never really acknowledge his existence. And um, there were only three people who he trusted to carry out his final wishes, and I was the first one on that list. And for a year, I didn't talk about his death. I felt as though it was my my duty to really carry out what he wanted. Um, I fought my parents to make sure that um, they didn't betray his wishes. I didn't talk about it with any of my friends when I came back after spreading his ashes wherever he wanted them spread. All semester, I've been avoiding talking about my older brother. I've been avoiding that because I felt like I was, I had this internal conflict with following through with what he had requested and um, coming to terms with what really happened. So that's where I am. And um, I just have to keep writing about it. This is something that I constantly deal with. Like I'm constantly writing about it and constantly not writing about it and not talking about it. And sometimes I talk about it. It's just, uh, yeah, it's just, it's an ongoing story. And I actually, one way I deal with it is I have a journal that's dedicated specifically to him. So anytime I think about him, I write as if I'm writing to him. So. So I signed up for writing class because I felt like I had a story to tell. Just like JD, it took me all semester to gather the strength to share my trauma with my classmates. I wanted the world to see me as strong and in control. My story would reveal the opposite. I was suffering and in pain. After I told that story, everything else came pouring out. Things like mommy issues that now affect my parenting style, confidence issues with men, money issues, and how bombing the SAT made me feel like an idiot, even now. Writing class helps me work through my shit, learn from it, and make better choices about where I go from here. It's therapy. One of our listeners is a therapist who told us that she has referred our podcast to her clients. Lori Schrager works here in Miami and does yoga with Andrea. I spent an hour with Lori, milking her for free therapy. And, oh yeah, I also asked her why she recommends our podcast to her patients. Lori is super chill. So if you fall into a meditative coma, just go with it. You'll have one minute, 38 seconds. I'll ring a bell when the interview is over. So when you write things down, um, it helps you make sense of them and helps you get some perspective and think about change and um, pause, that pause, so that you're not just seeing through the filter of the thoughts and you can kind of put them to the side and um, see a little bit clearer, you know, 
I'll use, this is interesting, sometimes I'll use writing if somebody has like um, a fear <coughs> that on the surface is not irrational, you know, but they can't let it go, I'll write it down. And just that, as weird as that sounds, just writing it down, looking at it, you know, is enough to take some of the power away. So it depends, you know, sometimes I'll, we'll use it for grief, you know, writing a letter to someone they lost. Sometimes that's way too much um, in the beginning, but can be really powerful after a while. Um, often there's a fear, I think, to cutting through to the truth. It's kind of that moment when you're having a hard conversation with somebody or you want to, and you get that like, butterflies in your stomach and it's so much easier just to you know bury your head in the sand not deal with it avoid it get angry so anything you know and um so often i'll use it for something like that because it is sort of like just writing for yourself you don't have to send it you don't have to do it um speak your mind speak speak the truth fear of cutting through to the truth bury your head in the sand that's shame. Speak your mind. Speak the truth. That's vulnerability. People approach me now and tell me how much they've related to stories they've heard on our podcast. People I really didn't even like that much before. They tell me their fears, their insecurities, and then I see them differently. Ah, empathy. I see everyone differently now. I understand more and try to judge less. And that's not natural for me. I'm judgy and critical. And some have said, hard. I hate those traits in me. So I keep going to class and writing and sharing and listening because I need reminders. Don't we all? Thank you for listening to Writing Class Radio. If you love this podcast, tell your friends. Our next contest has begun. The prompt is this. Write about something you don't understand. For example, I don't understand why I keep falling for addicts. Or, I don't understand why my mom doesn't listen to me. Or, I don't understand why I feel poor even when I'm not. Even better is why does any of that bother me? A good story asks the question, why? For more details on the contest, visit our website, writingclassradio.com. Writing Class Radio is produced by Diego Saldana Rojas, Virginia Laura, Andrea Askwitz, and me, Allison Langer. Theme music by Daniel Correa. Additional music by Ari Herstan, Montplacier, and Misha Morel. Writing Class Radio is sponsored by and recorded at the University of Miami School of Communication. There's more writing class on our website. Study the stories we study and listen to our craft talks. If you don't want to participate in our writing contest but still want a prompt, pick one of our daily prompts from our website or follow us on Twitter at WRTG Class Radio. There's no better way to understand ourselves and each other than by writing and sharing our stories. Everyone has a story. What's yours?
Jeff Woods and I'm shining a light on music and the rock stars who make it. He just was one of those people, he, he stood out. He was a magic guy. He really was a magic guy. All, we all have force. He had the same amount of force as we all have. This was before Led Zeppelin. Robert was full on. I mean, he was Led Zeppelin without the band behind him. He had the hair, the jeans, the whole thing, you know. And he was amazing. The Records and Rockstars podcast, heard around the world and yours to hear wherever you get podcasts. All the episodes from jeffwoodsradio.com.